I think generally the beauty for me of it is finding freedom within the limitations and I think that's what's always fascinated me rather than not having limitations. What happens in the brain when someone creates new music? Musical improvisation is a skill that draws on many parts of the brain and is also related to creativity in other domains. In this episode of A Grey Matter, we'll be speaking to both legendary jazz pianist Jason Ribello and UQ neuroscientist Professor Jeff Goodhill to explore the science behind musical creativity. Jason Ribello is a leading jazz pianist from the UK who spent 10 years touring the world, first with Sting and then Jeff Beck. He recorded three albums with Sting and has also recorded many of his own, including the 2016 solo project Held. Our very own Professor Jeff Goodhill is a neuroscientist who studies how the brain works from a computational perspective, particularly how it wires up in response to experience. A keen saxophonist, he has a long-standing interest in how neuroscience can enrich our understanding of the processes of musical improvisation. So first things first, how did you two meet? Well, we, we, um, we both come from the same part of London and we met in our early teens um, because we played in an orchestra, the Wandsworth Youth Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and I played bassoon in it and Jeff played clarinet, although I also played piano but not, not in the orchestra. So you're both classically trained but also you've both ended up playing different instruments to the ones that you started off with. Well no, I started I started with piano, okay. but it's just that um you don't you don't really have piano in an orchestra, so mm-hmm. so I played bassoon as well. And Jeff, do you still keep up your saxophone playing? Um I do a little bit. So I still play clarinet as I was doing in the orchestra. And then um about that time when I met Jason I'd also just taken up the saxophone and Jason actually taught me how to play take five, uh, which I'm very grateful for. <laughs> and so I still managed to practice a little bit obviously not nearly as much as I'd like to but with um, there's a lot of technology around these days which makes it much easier to to have fun practicing when you play an instrument like the saxophone which doesn't play chords so there's a bunch of apps which you can dial up backing tracks for different tunes and so on and lots of tools are helping you oh wow so it's like you're playing in a group well uh sort of nothing like playing with real people the next best thing. The next best. So, Jason, I'll start with you. Can you talk us through the process of improvising? Do you have a framework of certain, you know, chords or notes that that you've got in mind, or is the process more organic for you? Well, to me, improvising is is more of a spectrum. So you can have different levels of restrictions with the improvising. Now, in jazz, the classic way of improvising, at, at which um, jazz musicians in America did you know from the 1900s onwards is they would take a popular tune or melody and they would use the chord sequence of that melody to improvise new melodies so that's one of the um, tried and tested ways if you like that jazz musicians have used as their kind of springboard for their improvising so that means that we'll follow the chord sequence so it's a fixed chord sequence that goes round and round. But um, there are many other different ways of improvising. You can improvise where you have no fixed chord sequence and you're completely spontaneously creating a piece of music. So that would be at the sort of extreme end, if you like. And then in between those two, there's all sorts of different levels, if you like, of restriction with the improvising. And each different 
set of rules, if you like, produces a different result in the end. And that makes it quite interesting. So talk me through those those rules involved, because I guess to most people, jazz feels like, you know, it, it feels or sounds really free flowing. But I guess that there's actually a structure behind all of this that underlies everything. Well, in, in, in the jazz that we know from black American musicians that has kind of that's the where, where it started, they would be using um, popular tunes mostly. So it'd be tunes from shows, standards, um, summertime, you know, songs that were well known. And they would use those as vehicles for their improvising. But then they would also have an African rhythmic um, feel on that music. And so that gives us what we know of or think of as jazz today. But there is also improvising that you could even say is outside of that form of jazz. But it's still improvising. It's using just using different elements. And to me, I love the American history of jazz. That's kind of what started me playing, really. And that's my real passion. But I also love improvising in whatever um, restrictions you choose to, to use or lack of restrictions. So you can hear... Um, there's some great classical improvisers who, for their language, rather than using the jazz language, they'll use the classical language, maybe the language of Mozart, and they'll improvise in that style. And I find that equally as magical. So in a sense, the key ingredient is this sense of spontaneously creating music that is not completely pre-planned before. That's the thing that I find exciting about the whole process. Is there a conscious process that goes on when it's happening or do you kind of just feel like the the notes are coming out in the moment without necessarily you having to think or concentrate on what comes next? Well, I mean, for me, definitely the best improvising is when there's the least thinking. So you're really just going with each idea as it pops up rather than trying to pre-plan anything or... And, and the analogy I use a lot is it's like a conversation. So we every day we are improvising because if we have a conversation with someone else, we're not planning what our response is going to be after their next response because you don't need to do that. Your brain or your mind comes up with stuff quite easily and spontaneously. And it's exactly the same with music. You don't really need to plan things much in advance. Every now and then you might have an idea that is a bit more thought out and you might use a bit of thinking to help you um, navigate something. But most of the time, um, the music flows much more naturally um, and musically when you're not thinking. Thinking's quite slow for the process of, of playing music. Jeff, do we know what happens in the brain during musical improvisation? Well, people have studied this by uh, putting musicians in an MRI scanner, magnetic resonance imaging scanner. I can't imagine that's easy to to fit instruments in there. No. Uh, so people, the way people have done it, it essentially just with a keyboard and a very impoverished keyboard because it needs to be MRI compatible, mm. so you can have, it can't have any metal components in it. And so it's usually only got uh, twenty or thirty keys. But what you do is you put somebody in the scanner and then you um, ask them to improvise a tune. And then what you need to do is then compare their brain activity with when they're doing something similar but not improvising. 
because you know most of the brain will be active most of the time in both cases and so what you want to look for is the difference that you know what's the difference in brain activity when people are actually improvising so normally people compare with a uh, playing a memorized piece so comparing those brain uh, patterns of brain activity what what people have found is that there are essentially two brain networks which are critically involved in improvisation. These are called the default network and the executive control network. So the default or default mode network is a brain network that's well known to be involved in many different processes. It's particularly important. Um, it subserves what's uh, mind wandering. So if you're just sort of thinking about not very much, it's your default network which is, which is active. And that's really where new ideas are coming from. So obviously, when improvising, you need to be generating new ideas. But at the same time, you need to be evaluating and shaping those ideas. And that's where the executive control network comes in. So if you're just playing a memorized piece, then uh, the executive control network is, is dominant because you're, you need to be focused, you need to be on task, um, get everything right. But what's special about, about improvisation is um, that you need you need this dynamic interplay between the default network and the executive control network so that you can both generate new ideas, be spontaneous, but at the same time um, shape those into a coherent form. Have there been any differences found between the default networks of, of people who aren't necessarily creative or musically gifted versus people who are? Because for me, when you talk about, Jason, when you talk about the fact that improvisation when we're speaking comes naturally, you know, that makes sense to me in a conversation. But say, for example, I can play piano, but I could definitely not improvise. You know, that it feels totally foreign to me. Uh, have there already been any differences, Jeff, that, uh, in the research? Well, I don't, think, I don't think there's been enough research to actually show a difference in uh, the behaviour of the default network between um, um, skilled improvisers and non-skilled improvisers. But there have been a lot of studies looking at brain plasticity in response to musical training in general. So, for instance, um, there was a classic study of string players which looked at the brain representation of the little finger on their left hand. So if you're a right-handed person who's not a musician, then you probably don't use the little finger on your left hand very much at all. But if you're a string player, that's a very important finger. And what the study found was that the size of the representation in the brain, so the part of the brain that um, controls the left little finger, is much larger in, in, in skilled string players than in, uh, in non, uh, non-musicians. And what's more... Uh, so one could ask then, well, maybe they became very good string players because they were born with this larger representation is it, is it and that gave effect? them a leg. Yeah. So the way the study addressed that was that they correlated the size of that um, um, that region of the brain with the the time at which the people had started learning the instrument. What they found was the earlier you start learning, the larger that representation. So that strongly suggests a causation there, that it's the, the training itself which is causing the enlargement of that representation. That's totally fascinating. So with regards to training, is, is it possible to be better or to improve at improvising? Can you teach someone to improvise? It's an interesting question. In one sense, I don't think you actually train someone in the improvising itself but what you do you can learn and train is the language and that's the difference between a child for the first time sitting at a piano and improvising as opposed to someone like myself or someone who's been improvising for many years 
and actually being able to create what sounds as a coherent piece of music. And I would say that, that in a sense, the, the real training part is the learning of the language to a point where there's very little effort needed to recall what you want to say, which is, to me is, is exactly the same thing as talking. You know, I mean, once you have all your vocabulary um, on tap, so to speak, it's not too hard, unless you're in an interview like this, it's not too hard <laughs> to speak coherently. <laughs> well, you're doing a very good job. <laughs> Jason, you've produced solo albums as well as recorded albums with Sting. I'm interested in how the creative process differs between when you're improvising spontaneously, say when you're performing, versus when you're composing a piece of music and you're in the studio. Does it is it a different process to get to the end point? Well, I would say, you know, the difference between improvising and composing is essentially the starting point is the same. So in improvising and composing, there's literally a moment where you don't have an idea and then there's a moment when an idea pops up, you know, and so that part of the process is exactly the same. The only difference with, obviously, with improvising is that um, you don't have the, the luxury, if you like, to sort of get out of real time and then plan things a bit more carefully. So as a composer, you still have that initial idea, but then you can take your time and develop that idea and try different things out so that the end result is, you could say it's a sort of perfect improvisation because there's unlimited time involved. So improvising is never going to give you the same sense of perfect structure that you would get as a composer. But... There are a few incredibly gifted improvisers around that get pretty close to that. If not, you know, it can be debatable, actually, whether the improvisation is inferior to the composition. And that in itself, as an improviser, when you see someone with that level of ability, that's quite breathtaking, really. I remember once, um, I think it was at a museum in New York, I saw these original handwritten manuscripts from composers and it was really interesting to see the difference between, say, Mozart's, which, you know, everything, all the notes on the page were totally pristine. It was as if he'd heard all of the music in his head before putting it down, whereas Wagner's was, there was, you know, crossing out and things things missing and replaced and written over the top. I'd be interested in hearing your experiences of the different musicians that you've worked and recorded with um, in that creative process and how, how different people work. I guess it, it when you're talking about classical music, it's different from jazz in, in both the end point and the the work produced but also the process of getting there I would imagine. Well I, actually that brings up a really interesting point um, and that's that people tend to think that classical musicians and composers like Bach and Beethoven didn't improvise which actually is the reverse is true and for a start they all would improvise as a very natural part of their musical careers you know Beethoven would you know, perform concerts where he'd play his latest sonata in the first half and then the second half it would just be him improvising and there's it's documented that his improvising was better than his pieces, you know. But And the other point is if you look at someone like Bach and you look at the output, 
the amount, the sheer amount of music that he wrote. I mean, it's just staggering. And that tells you immediately that this is someone pretty much writing down what they're hearing in their heads spontaneously because he just would not have had that much time to be jiggling things around you know so just the and it's exactly the same with Mozart the sheer amount of music produced implies or very strongly suggests that actually their improvising process was kind of not far off the composition process to jump from composition to practice and performance, tell me about the chessboard that you'll be using at a performance Jason is giving. What will you be trying to demonstrate? Well, one of um, Jason's lesser-known talents is um, he's actually quite a good chess player. And, um, you know, in those long hours spent in hotel rooms traveling the world, he has played a lot of online chess games. And um, so I thought it would be fun to demonstrate the, you know, the, the amazing level of expertise that um, Jason has developed in jazz improvisation by showing how um, he can do, he can improvise and do a ch- cognitive challenging task at the same time. So he's going to be improvising a tune, and at the same time, um, I'm going to challenge him to a game of chess. That's so he'll call crazy. out. We'll have the board in front of us, and he'll call out the moves to me. So I'll make the moves for him. And um, so the, the the point is to show that Jason has automated this process of improvisation to such a level that um, whereas normally he's devoting his higher level cognitive resources to um, you know, shaping the, uh, the more subtle aspects of the improvisation, instead he can still improvise but divert that higher level cognitive control to uh, another completely different uh, and very challenging task. That's incredible. Could I just make a point? I, I just want to complain a little bit because we just tried it earlier to test out if it worked uh-huh. and we played the, the, and I did improvise and I, we played you know probably eight moves into the game but then Jeff did say well, I think you've left your queen side a bit weak which <laughs> 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 I thought was a bit unfair <laughs> let, me, let me emphasise the point is that you know the, the crucial issue here is that, that Jason is capable of doing both at all not that he did either of them you know um, to a stellar level <laughs> Uh, essentially, this is about a particular type of cognitive process, an automatic process. And it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but generally speaking, when we do certain things, either we have conscious control over the over them or over a period of time, they may become automatic and we don't have to think consciously about them. For example, driving a car is often the example that's used. Can you talk us through the the amount of time or whether it, whether it's the amount of time or practice or effort that is involved in turning a, a controlled process into something that's automatic. What happens in the brain? So a good example is learning learning a language. So it takes children a very long time to learn to, 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 to speak fluently and express their thoughts fluently. And so they are learning about the control of all the muscles in their mouth and tongue and so on. And... Um, um, being able to integrate all the brain areas that, that that are involved, and so you sort of take it for granted that by the time somebody's a teenager, they're 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 pretty skilled at that. But that's actually taken an incredible amount of work and practice. Um, but by that stage, everybody has automated that those processes, so you really don't have to think about them. So when I'm talking now, what I'm focusing on is is the ideas I'm trying to get across, not you know where my tongue should be at any particular moment in time, and so. 
you know, a very experienced jazz improviser has automated that process of um, of 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 knowing what you know what kind of things are going to going to work, such that they can focus on letting the ideas out. Because the you know implementing those ideas is now a completely automatic process for them. Just like as you said, you can you can have a, a very deep conversation while while driving. You don't have to focus on your gear changes and so on because you've you've had so much practice at that that you you, you need to devote very little cognitive resources to that. Jason, how long has that process been automatic for you? Do you remember a time, say, when you were quite young that that you consciously had to focus on improvising or producing music spontaneously? No, I don't think it's really like that because I've always been interested in improvising and it's an ongoing process, really, because what you're constantly trying to do is... Like Jeff was saying, you're converting that initial idea into actual physical movements and and producing the sound. And that ability, it seems, you know, you can infinitely refine that, you know, and I I feel very much that I'm on a, you know, a journey. I mean, I listen to, you know, other musicians who I feel do that in a more skillful way than I do, you know, so it's something that you're continually developing that skill to translate your idea into reality so in that sense um yeah it's never ending really but having said that you know when I first started I couldn't have say played over a there's a there's a jazz composition called giant steps which has lots of chords happening quite quickly and when I started playing jazz I couldn't improvise fluently over that and that's something that you know with practice and working at the the sort of nuts and bolts if you like that's something that I then learned how to do you know so that sort of improvement can keep going on forever really I guess as long as you're still alive What's your view then on creativity? How much is, you know, how much of musical success is sheer practice and hard work versus an innate ability? You know, people talk about, for example, Mozart as a musical genius. It just came to him without effort. Where, where, in your opinion, is the balance there? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously there are people very young that seem to have skills and abilities that um you know take decades to <laughs> um so i don't know i don't really know the answer to that one i mean i do know that skills take time to develop and there must be other reasons i can't I, you know i don't I don't believe you could take a pill that would suddenly make you be able to play over giant steps, you know. I think you'd have to put in hours of practice to develop that ability. So there's this uh, uh, well-established result that it takes about 10,000 hours or about 10 years of dedicated practice to become an expert in a particular um, challenging domain. Um, and examples are often used are um, expertise in chess being a you know world-class chess player or uh, a world-class musician and one of the important um, findings has been that it's the type of practice that's very important and there's particularly this word dedicated practice so for instance um, if I was 
you know, in learning, in, in trying to, I'm always trying to improve my ability to to play jazz. And so, you know, I don't have much time to do that. So what I do with that time is I focus on very, very specific things. So it's it's, it's great fun to just, just play through a song and, and enjoy yourself. And obviously you should spend, um, you should have some fun. But um, in order to actually get better, you need to actually focus on very specific things. So working on particular kinds of exercises, for instance, which um, sharpen your skills in 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 uh, improvisation. Do you see any creative parallels between being a scientist and a musician? Oh, I think um, there definitely are. Um, obviously, in some ways they're very very different, but in in some ways they're quite similar. In that, um, in science, you know, great science is all about having new ideas, right? I mean, just like jazz improvisation. Obviously, in science, uh, you know. The good ideas um, you have more leisure to <laughs> re- re- reflect on them, but uh, it's still the case that you know there's a moment when you don't have an idea, and then there's a moment when you do have an idea, and you see the world as a slightly different, different way. And so I think there are some parallels. What's next for you? Um, well, for me, um, I've have a new CD. Well, relatively new solo piano CD called Held. So I have some solo piano concerts in the UK to promote that so that's my next project it's out on edition records and I guess if you're in Australia it's probably not that easy to get hold of in the shops but um, you can go to the edition records website and order your copy or few copies that was Jason Rebello and Professor Geoffrey Goodhill talking about improvisation music and what happens in the brain That's all for this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Donna Liu. The podcast is produced, as always, by Jessica McGaw. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening. And now to play us out, Jason Ribello.